0: Hello and welcome to Science at All, a podcast about everything science sponsored by the Yale School of Medicine. I'm your host, Daniel Barron, and in this episode, I'm speaking with Carl Zimmer. Carl writes the matter column for the New York Times and is the author of 13 books about science. Uh, When we sat down to schedule our podcast recording, in fact, it was hard to put our schedules together because Carl was touring the world for his recent book, She Has Her Mother's Laugh, which won the 2019 National Academy's Communication Award and The Guardian named it the best science book of 2018. And as of recording this intro, Carl has already finished his next book, Life's Edge, The Search for What It Means to Be Alive, which will be published in March of 2021 and is now available to pre-order. It sounds like he uh, used uh, his quarantine time well, or at least better than I did. Um, Carl is a frequent guest on Radio Lab and an adjunct professor at Yale University where he often teaches classes on science communication. of which I've had the privilege of attending. Um, Carl is to his knowledge the only writer after whom a species of tapeworm has been named, which is neat. Uh, On a a personal note, I was excited to speak with Carl specifically about his history and one of his books, uh, Soul Made Flesh, was the first time I remember reading his work. Uh, It was when I was 23 years old and had a profound impact on the way I think about the world. In fact, I can still remember where I was sitting in my university's medical library when I picked it up. I was struck by Carl's ability to help me make sense of an extremely nuanced and complex history of how religion, theology, philosophy, and a relatively uh, nascent field of neuroscience kind of meshed together to sculpt the way we think about ourselves and society. I got so excited about the history of neuroscience that I wrote a couple of bad essays about it when I was a grad student and uh, included a large section on the history of epilepsy in my dissertation, which uh, kind of made some of my dissertation advisors roll their eyes. Oh well. Uh, I was um, perhaps understandably nervous at the beginning of our conversation and remain grateful to Carl for bearing with me as I kind of settled into speaking with someone I so greatly respect and admire. So here we go, Carl Zimmer. Thank you very much for coming out, especially given this very busy season for you as you're gathering more awards by the day for your recent book, which is wonderful. Um, I'm really excited to talk to you, uh, not only because you've been thinking about science at a very high level for a very long time, um, but also because you are extremely articulate and have a, a wonderful ability to put in words or put in language things that a lot of people think, but can't quite do that. And so one of the the central themes that we're interested in exploring is what is science and how do you approach it and what interests you about it? And so one of the things that uh, kind of struck me was, you know, growing up, it seemed like you were in a household where people were very politically active. And so I wanted to learn a little bit more, go back to the beginning, and then we'll work our way back to the present. Um, about what it was like growing up and whether you were interested in science communication or science generally at that age. Uh,
1: I was mainly um, obsessed with writing. I just wrote a lot, uh, sort of a graphomania kind of thing. And um, I uh, I mainly grew up in New Jersey. Um, uh, We were on a little farm, 25 acres, and I had sheep and chickens in a woodlot. And so I certainly, um, certainly had sort of, uh, the natural world a little more in my face than if I had been, you know, growing up in a suburban cul-de-sac or in a city. And, uh, I, I think that had an influence on me that I only kind of thought about later, you know? So, um, you know, writing a book about parasites is, is, uh, may seem strange and a weird choice, but, you know, like if you've seen enough, uh, you know, livestock dealing with parasites or, you know, picked a whole bunch of ticks off your dog or so on, you know, like, you know, you know, the
0: parasites are a part of life. (laughs) So these are kind of curiosities that you experienced even as a child and kind of your curiosity generally was peaked at that age. It was, although it's not like I ever
1: articulated that to myself. Um, and um, I didn't have great uh, science teachers uh, in grade school or high school. Um, they just, you know, it just was not a memorable experience. I had a couple of really good writing teachers, and I think that had a big influence on me. Um sort of reinforced my interest in writing, um, so, you know, by the time I got to college, I, I knew I wanted to write, but that's just such an incredibly wide open statement. And that was here at Yale then? I went to Yale undergraduate, yeah. So I I came here very excited because uh, I felt like, you know, what a great place to to learn how to become a writer, whatever, again, whatever that means. And um, I'll never forget it. I, I had this uh, sort of... Uh, Sort of double English class for freshman year, which I was really excited to to start on, and it was re- it was a great class, just sort of a whirlwind tour of of, of literature. Um, and the first day, I was at some you know welcome to college party uh, with a bunch of freshmen and some professors, and my English professor was there, and he said, "Well, welcome to college, and what do you want to do?" And and well, I, you know, I want to be an English major because I want to you writer, and I, I'm eternally grateful to him because he said, "Well, you know, here we don't really teach you how to be a writer; we teach you how to be a critic." Hmm. And I thought, "Whoa, I don't want to do that," <laughs> and uh, so I avoided a lot of the uh, literary theory classes, which were, you know, very much the rage at the time at Yale. Um, I more sort of focused on well, who are the were the writers that spoke to me and that I felt like I could really get something out of reading and then, um, you know, took a couple writing courses and then, you know, aside from that, you know, took classes to just
0: try to just sort of educate myself as broadly as I could, which included science. Well, so, so I'm, I'm a Philistine in terms of uh, writing. So when, when you say a critic, I'm thinking of like an art critic or... Uh, Anthony Lane, you know movies or whatever. So was that more what the education was focused on at the time? And how it was
1: more it, it was more about you know literary theory. Oh. So uh, you know, and in in other words, like you know, uh, what are you know? Do you have so de- just developing you know a sort of a an argument about. Um, what literature is or what it does, how it's assembled, you know, uh, and maybe that was sort of a sign that I was going to be heading off into the world of, of, of journalism, you know, where You know, I would read these uh, books and I'd just be really curious about the people who wrote them, who are these people who wrote them, um, what in their lives and in the politics and so on of their day led them to craft these books the way they did, and what do those works tell us about those times? And, um, you know, but uh, there were a lot of literary theorists who were just much more interested in talking about texts
0: and the death of the author, and it just— I, it felt like a very alien world mm. to me. Well, it's certainly alien to me. I don't know pretty much anything about that. Um so in all of this, I mean outside of creating maybe the philosophy of writing or critiques of writing um when I've read some of your early books, which I quite enjoyed, I'm thinking of Soul Made Flesh in particular, it seemed like you were trying to communicate something specific or teach something to an audience or expose an audience to something. And so that seems very different to me from like writing as a like a philosophical critique of who the author is disappearing or
1: Oh yeah, no, it, yeah. it is very different, absolutely. Uh, so
0: even at that time did you know that you wanted to express or to uncover something like no, that? No, no, look,
1: I was, you
0: know, I'm like 18 years old. I don't mm. know
1: what I'm doing. Mm, <laughs> you know, fair I'm, I'm I'm just sort of groping around and learning about things for the first time, and um, and there were experiences I had in college that were great experiences that I didn't appreciate until I was much older. Like oh my gosh, like I got to study with say Vicky Hearn, who's a who was a wonderful essayist and, and poet, um, and who was who really sort of like you know nudged me in in some good directions. Um. So, yeah, I would, I would not read too much into my college <laughs> career. Nice. Um, but, uh, you know, I think I would think like like a lot of uh, journalists, you know, I was thinking uh, that, oh, well maybe I'll be a novelist, you know, um, maybe that's what I'll do. You know, I, I would try things out. So um uh, so one summer um I worked the summer at uh our local newspaper, the Hunter County Democrat, which was, you know, it's a vanished uh thing, you know, it was a local newspaper um, gosh, it must have been at that point maybe 120 years old or something like that. And, and uh, with just, you know, full-time staff of people who knew our region inside and out and would go to the town meetings, knew all the politics, understood how how the, this place, which was still fairly rural then, was about to be transformed into really more of a bedroom community and, and the old ways were going to go away. Anyway, fantastic experience. Learned a lot. Um, That didn't make me think, oh, now I'm definitely going to be a journalist. I was still still sort of floundering. Um, So Mm – but again, floundering in a good way.
0: I'm I'm curious about that. So this was a Democrat, like a politically affiliated –
1: no, that's 90. just the that's just a very old name, the
0: hundred county oh, Democrat. Okay. So it's not like oh, okay. it's not a political publication. Oh. It was the county newspaper. I was curious. So you, your father was a politician or became a politician while you were in college or shortly thereafter for the Republican Party, and before then was very involved in these uh, openness campaigns. This is all you know, the gospel according to Wikipedia. <laughs> <laughs> all true. right, right. So uh, I, I was curious also that that sort of agenda of making the political process open to the public and giving people access to information that was, you know, previously, you know, within closed chambers or what have you. I'm, that seemed to me uh, kind of to be in line with the direction of making science more open, kind of maybe laying a foundation. Maybe I'm reading too much of that also.
1: Well, you know, I, I, you know, I, my father's, um, actually, um, when he was in college, right now, right before he went to law school, I think, um, one of his jobs was uh, as a stringer for the Associated Press. And um, so, you know, he worked as a journalist, Um, you know, he decided to go to law school and, and then eventually get into politics. But um, so he knew what journalism was about. And um, I don't, You know, I know people who – where it's like, you know, they're sort of like journalism runs in the family, almost like a dynasty or something. Mm -hmm. It wasn't like that at my house, but certainly um, my dad knew how, you know, the nuts and bolts of journalism work from from the inside. And I suppose that 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 probably did influence him in his politics and and that work he did because he was involved in an organization called Common Cause which pushed very much for openness in proceedings and and records and so on um sort of the predecessor to a lot of our sunshine laws um and uh, which he
0: also helped i believe in New Jersey yeah to get passed. Yep.
1: yeah yeah so uh yeah so you know uh, he had a um you know he had a his he was, you know, honestly kind of a, an odd fit in, in his party, uh, and, and part of that was because he was he had this very, very strong passion about openness and transparency um, being, you know, one of his top priorities, whereas, you know, a lot of politicians of any party would rather just sort of keep control of how things are moving, uh, and part of that control means not letting
0: p- other people knowing what you're doing. Maybe mm-hmm. that comes from journalism. I don't know. So if I recall, you graduated in 87. I was making mm-hmm. your personal decision to become a science journalist. It
1: wasn't a personal decision. It oh. was
0: looking for a job.
1: Oh, okay. I mean, well, like, again, Maybe like, we should move to that. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, you know, like uh, when—, when if you're going to ask me about becoming a science writer, don't think that I was sort of on some mountaintop saying like, "I have decided this is what I'm going to do," and all you people are- <laughs> make it possible for me. That's not how it worked. <laughs> well, tell me that story. Though. That sounds. Well, I graduated from college, and and I um, f- I did a variety of jobs. I worked as a carpenter for a while. I was still um, thinking like. I'd been writing some fiction in college, and I thought, oh, well, maybe I should just, you know, try my hand at this. Um, and uh, and then my girlfriend at the time was going to be going into the Peace Corps, and I was, I was living in Philadelphia, and I was like, ah, I don't really know it that many people in Philadelphia, so let me move to New York, where some of my really good friends are, and find a job. And... Um, you know, and it was sort of this combination of things that, um, uh, you know, trying to work as a, as a carpenter in New York is just a ridiculous. What proposal. does that mean exactly? At where you like meet? renovating houses and things like oh, okay. that. Yeah. Um, but it's all union in, in New York City. So it's just, you know, you you know somebody who knows somebody and I'm just sort of showing up. And mm. so I was like, oh, well, that's too bad. So I needed something. And so I worked for a little while for a very, very small environmental organization, basically one person. And I was the assistant. And then I just – I was also writing and I was sort of deciding, you know, like this – uh, fiction is not w- really working because i don't sort of feel this kind of natural urge or instinct to be telling stories about people who just live in my head i just It just wasn't working and as a psychiatrist, I
0: think that's healthy.
1: <laughs> Well, you know, I, I am. I have a great imagine, a, a great respect for people with the imagination to sure. just like concoct a world and be responsible for all the people and it's incredible all their histories yeah. and all. The, yeah, it's a beautiful thing. Um, but you know, like the people I would concoct were just not that interesting to me. Um, and so I was like looking around for you know, just I'm just you know uh, getting in touch with various places to look for work and one of the things I thought was like maybe I should try to write maybe I should work at a magazine like just start out bottom of the rung somewhere at some magazine and try to learn how this works um, and there was an opening for an assistant copy editor at a magazine that happened to be about science and um, I Discover? there was a Discover yeah. Magazine and um, I went in and took the test and I was super grateful to land that job and so started there just copy editing. In other words, just reading and reading and reading and you know, looking for those little stray punctuation mistakes and spelling mistakes that could just uh, screw everything up. And uh, you know, this was right before computers kicked in, so it really was incumbent on
0: the copy editors to catch everything. Now it's quickly red line. That's right. <laughs> now
1: it's quickly red line yet. Yeah, uh-huh. just, just on the edge of that. So anyway, so that's how I really stumbled into um, a science publication. And then they, after a while they said, Hey, well, why don't you, why don't you also try fact checking, which is another really important component of putting out a big magazine. And so I did that and found it totally fascinating. And,
0: um, what was fascinating about it?
1: Well, just to back up to being a copy editor, I, I was reading these articles that, uh, it was kind of hard to copy edit them because I just kept getting so absorbed in them. It was, it was Mm. so interesting what I was learning. Um, and so, you know, I was happy that I was at a place where I could read things that I really enjoyed. You know, I wasn't writing for some, you know, I wasn't like at a trade magazine for accountants, you know, that would just not be that interesting (laughs) to me. Sure. Someone. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, sure. No, nothing against accountants, but it wouldn't be for me. So, um, so I, um, so I was really enjoying being in that environment um and and I think it was partly because I had always been interested in science and I was like this is this is great and um fact checking is, is uh what happens after an article is edited the fact checker receives the edited manuscript and all of the Transcripts and reference material, and a list of phone numbers and addresses to get in contact with people who were interviewed for the story, and it's, it's your job to make sure that what's on the page in the printed magazine is true.
0: Hmm.
1: So you get—you don't have to like write a feature article from scratch. You can see how our, an incredibly talented writer did that, um, and you see how the pieces got put together, and you. You can also find the places where it's wrong. Hmm. Um, and uh, so uh, I, I think fact-checking is, you know, just such a great way to learn how to do journalism. I mean, I think, you know, I, I honestly, like, th- that is a lot better than
0: paying a lot of money to go to journalism school, honestly. Hmm. Interesting. It's like the equivalent of starting a business instead of getting an MBA, I guess.
1: Um, or, but not starting it on your own just like, you know, somebody starting, Uh, starting the business and saying like, look, you're going to be right next to me. You can see everything I do. Uh, and, and, you know, you're not going to get in big trouble for those things, but you
0: have responsibilities too. you know, that, that's like that, That, that's how it was. Well, so here's something I've wondered also, and I hear about fact checking as well, and I've, you know, I think I've had two pieces fact checked before and, There are some things that um, some types of evidence or some types of claims seem to be very seem to lend themselves well to checking, right? But then there are scientific controversies about which you've written. And so I'm curious how something like that is fact checked. Like, how did you navigate a controversial topic where both sides have different truth claims?
1: Well um you just uh familiarize yourself with sort of what their written statements on that controversy um you talk to them on the phone to make sure you understand just sort of the you know the broad outlines of why they stake out their particular viewpoint on this and you know really like again because it's fact checking like it's not your job to write the whole article and and decide what goes in there you you really are, are constrained to like say, like, is what is on the page accurate? is it, is it, is it And, you know, you, you, it's not just saying, oh, this should be 32 instead of 35. Hmm. You can say, like, well, actually, this, the writer is saying that there's this huge controversy. And everything that I see indicates that it's just this one crank who is yelling at everybody else. And that's a different thing. And and you know that, that goes into um, into the fact checking report and then the editor has to decide to make that call. Like how am I going how am I going to take this fact checking report and and fix this story? Hmm.
0: Interesting. So you did well then at Discover. And then you eventually became that editor. Yes, so many yes. Fact right.
1: So I got to um, go from fact checking. They would add on, like, okay, well, now why don't you write, help write some of the little stories at the beginning of the magazine? Mm. So there were maybe four or five of us, sort of junior staff, who, and every month each of us write a couple of these short pieces in addition to our fact checking and other responsibilities. And um, so there, you know, and then you start to learn how to actually write a piece, you know, how to find the idea. How to <clears throat> interview people uh, and assemble a story, mm-hmm. and after a while, um, I was just I was writing a lot and uh, got promoted and um, at the magazine, you know the the, the main focus that people uh, had was on on the sort of editorial process. So, you know, managing stories, managing it from the beginning, from the proposals to assigning the art to getting the stories in fact checking and all the rest and then production. Hmm. So I um, was uh, really working hard as I was, you know, becoming an associate editor and then senior editor to, to stake out time that I could still write. So I, I when I was a, I was a senior editor there for like four years, I think. And I'd say it was about half and half, half editing and half
0: writing. So in all of this, you were picking topics on your own or were they, I I don't know how it works. So mostly, mostly, mostly
1: I was looking for story ideas because um, that's a lot of work. And so, you know, editors would rather that their writers do that work of of finding the ideas and uh, pitching and. The ideas to them, and then they can say, like, yeah, we, I like this, I like this, I like this, uh, and then get, make the assignments. Sometimes mm-hmm. something would happen, and you would just get just be told, like, okay, you, you have to write about this. Um, but I'd say the vast majority was self-generated. Hmm. So around that time, were you
0: also beginning your books?
1: Yeah, so I would say that, I guess in 1996, six or so i uh started to get the book bug um the book bug <laughs> yeah well you know i was i you know i was you know reading lots of books just on my own time and and there was there's something special about books that's very different than a magazine feature uh and something very attractive to me about that um and then um the, you know, I would write these features um, and just be gathering huge amounts of information um, and some of that information would go into this 4,000 or 5,000-word piece, which is a big piece. Um, but then there'd be a lot more that was left out and um, it was always always kind of frustrating because I sort of felt like, well, the real story is bigger and more interesting hmm. And so then a friend of mine um, named Stephen Morrow was getting into book publishing and decided he wanted to edit science books. And so he said he was very encouraging when I would complain about that. And he's like, well, you know, why don't you write a proposal about something that comes out of the stuff you're writing and I'll be happy to show it to my bosses. And um, yeah. And so before I knew it, he came back and said, yeah. They like it, so you should go get an agent. So that was my
0: first book called At the Water's Edge. Right. So how is that process different then? So I'm I'm imagining, so if you're writing a, a piece for a discoverer that's 5,000 words, um, you can ask a very space-limited question, I'm imagining, in my head. So it's something that you have to be able to wrap up in 5,000 words. Whereas some of your books, um, they ask very, well, I'm thinking like, can just to reference soul made flesh, uh you know, the history of essentially neuroscience and how we came to view what the brain is and like it's very philosophical, very I don't want to say tedious in a boring sense, but like involved. It's a very involved topic. And so I'm curious if these were two like different types of like mental muscles you were working out and you felt a need to do both at the same time? I have always enjoyed uh, mixing it up.
1: Um, hmm. Books are a very different experience than writing features, which are a very different experience from writing thousand-word columns. And, you know, there are even other kinds of things that you can do. And and so I, I do like, you know, a, the I like the variety. Hmm. Um, in terms of how it, the book process works, um Uh, sometimes they sort of um, emerge out of magazine work or newspaper work. You you just realize, oh, this is, there's a book here. Mm. Uh, uh, But then other times I've just said like, hmm, you know, I've finished a book and I'd like to write another one now. And, you know, what kind of question do I have that might be interesting? So with Soul Made Flesh, you know, I thought, well, it'd be interesting to write a book about the brain, but- You know, and there's so many books about the brain and, and so many incredibly talented writers who are just, just really doing a great job in this area. So I don't want to, you know, replicate what they have already done. Um, And so I thought, well, you know, is there, is there a question that I have that I haven't really had answered Mm. by these books? And I just was, I remember just walking along one day and I was like, you know, I, it's interesting that I am, you know, I know that I am thinking in my brain and I (laughs) that this voice in my head is, you know, this interaction between neurons, like that's where the action is that it's, and, and that, you know, this is what my brain is for. Uh, And, you know, like, it's not, it's not a self-evident thing. No, not and at all. <laughs> so, when, so when did people start to think that way? Right. And so that sort of framed some research I did, just reading the work of historians of science, people like Stanley Finger, and, um, and just sort of going, going around, looking around, going back and forth. And, and, you know, there was this fascinating period in the 1600s that I'd never heard about before. And, you know, you had people like Descartes who, you know, lots of us have heard of, but then there are people like Thomas Willis that I had never heard of. Um, mm. You know, he wrote the first book about the brain and, and uh, like, who, who is this person? And, um, and you know, just realizing, oh, I'm really, this is a big area and, this, and the more I find out about it, the more excited I get. That's usually my signal that there's a book there.
0: Oh, yeah. I remember well, I remember reading your book being very excited about how unintuitive it was and how long it took people, just even functional localization to the cortex of the brain. It took decades, centuries, and so that was very exciting and it it occurs to me also that you know going back to our what is what is science question um, this is like an intellectual history of science and i'm curious i'm curious how you arrived at kind of a timeline approach to that was your idea to chart that intellectual history or just to ask the question almost as if you were performing your own empirical investigation of what did it take what were the ingredients involved to understand that the brain is like the seat of consciousness or whatever
1: Well, I think that, um, you know, the uh, a a lot of times, you know, the best way to answer a question like um, when did we start thinking about the brain is the brain is is in the form of a story, Hmm. you know, because, um, you know, I can say, well, you know, you can really say that it was Thomas Willis who who took that first step. But that naturally raises the question of, well, why him and why then? And uh, then you have to say, "Well, okay." Uh, so we gotta we gotta start this story a couple thousand years earlier, right? And we have Egyptians, to talk, right, Egypt. you have to talk about the Egyptians. We've got to talk about Aristotle, talk about Galen, talk about all right. that, and then we have to talk about how um, you know in Europe um, it took a little while to rediscover all of them, and they got rediscovered in a way that, you know, to some extent was almost like a, like a religion that you just, you took what they said as, as gospel. And, and who were you to try to find new evidence of your own?
0: You're referring Um, to
1: like Galen and reading from the text or. Yeah. yeah. Well, you know, I mean, literally some people would say, well, Aristotle and Galen, they lived a long time ago. Hmm. They were, they lived closer to creation, to the garden of Eden.
0: Oh, that's and since
1: man has been in this fall, their knowledge is closer to perfection, way closer than yours. So, who are you to think that you could say that Aristotle was wrong? Hmm. Um, I mean, you, you see people like just writing that. Um, <laughs> it's just it's on the page, but you know, there were obviously people who who were like, eh, you know, that thanks, but I'm going to try to figure this stuff out on my own. You know, Leonardo da Vinci was not going to just sit back. Yeah. Or- <laughs> um, and so, um, so you suddenly, in order to just ask, well, why Thomas Willis, why, you know, 1660, um, you have to answer other questions, and you have to—basically, you find yourself telling a story.
0: Hmm. So that's—so I guess that's where your hook into the story comes in, in terms of being able to publish something. So I'm imagining—so one of the questions I wondered when— um, when I was reading that book, or even your more recent book, She Has Her Mother's Laugh, is you have such an exhaustive knowledge of these subjects. And how, how does someone with that knowledge base uh, become a journalist or become a writer versus become an ac- a scientist and like perform the experiments versus write about them? And so it seems like you're more interested in the, the telling and the talking about science then.
1: I, you know, I have had this, you know, my own particular path and I can't sort of generalize it and I can't say, oh, this is the path that I decided I was going to take. And I'm not saying that this is what other people have to do. It just so happened that I was an English major with an interest in science, stumbled into a job. Writing about science, which is happens to be a great way to get a sort of lifelong education in science, and that's it.
0: It sounds totally cool.
1: <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm I'm grateful every day for it, except well, so, those days when I can't figure out how to solve some writing problem. Then I get angry.
0: <laughs> uh, you go for a walk around the block or something.
1: Yeah, or <laughs> on Twitter.
0: <laughs> oh, that's that kid uh, found the fire. I'm afraid. One of the really big debates in the history of neuroscience was where do we localize uh, behavioral function, right? So is it ventricle, is it the white matter, is it the gray matter? So there are these huge debates, and everyone had their own thing, right? And it turned out none of them were really that correct, but people did a lot of work on it all at the same time. And I find that in many scientific communities, there are similar conversations going on. Um, And I'm curious... Because you get to, like, sample all of these different communities, you know, in your column. And uh, I'm curious if you see, like, this repeating of, you know, that— this sort of controversy that no one really knows the answer, but everyone's very convinced.
1: Well, I think that um, what scientists really value is— a way of addressing something in the natural world that lets them get at least some answers, you Mm. know? So, you know, no model of the world is going to be perfect. Um, and, but, and, but, you know, imperfect models can be good enough to let you find out something new. So, you know, it, it, Let's take, you know, two models of the brain, for example, um, the model that the brain is phlegm and that all that matters is that there are these giant empty chambers inside your head and animal spirits surge through them. Okay. You've got that model and then you've got this model that says, no, actually it's the brain itself where, um, memory and passions and all the rest are, uh, are, are play out, um, that's a really—that second thing is really simplistic, <laughs> hmm. but it's a lot better than thinking that it's the ventricles where thought happens. And, and, right. and you know, you're going to be able to find more out about the brain if you have that model about the brain instead of the ventricles. So— um, so I don't, you know, I don't think any scientist claims like I have it all figured out um, or, oh, this model explains everything. Um, usually what you'll find is people will say, well, um, OK, look, I know that this is uh, sort of a simplified version of reality, but it's a lot better than what those people got. Hmm. So, you know, I guess one re- one thing that comes to mind is is the genome where, you know, it's, it's a this crazy mess of DNA. Uh, and, and you know, we've been uh, asking in for decades now, basically, you know, how does the genome work the way that people have been asking for centuries, how does the brain work? Hmm. Um, what gene does what? Well, you see, now there you go. You're just, you have you have uh, presented a model. Right. And you, you have, you have said, said like, oh, well, away. how does the genome work? Well, it's all about... It's all about these genes. So mm. what we need to do is identify. Is, is, is you know let's uh, let us let us spend our careers identifying genes, and then and that will tell us what the genome does. Now there are other people who say like, are are you crazy? Like genes are boring. Mm. Genes genes are 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 the least interesting part of the genome you know you've got enhancers and repressors and you've got all this circuitry that decides what what genes get used and when you know there's this whole logic to that you know like that's what's interesting
0: hmm.
1: and so you'll have so you have the you have the gene catalogers and you have the the circuitry people and you know like you have those camps and and um you know Neither of them is wrong, but but both of them will say, like, well, what we're doing is what really matters. Hmm. And so when it's kind of tricky when you go to interview people and, and they're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm not saying that they're wrong. I'm just saying that they're just fixated on
0: something that's just not that important. Well, how much of that do you think is a result of uh, funding limitations? So something that I've often wondered about or sensed in, uh, different communities is a lot of the disagreements that, uh, people have or, you know, hash out in, uh, journals, um, may not be actual scientific disagreements, but more business disagreements.
1: Oh, I think so. Definitely. Who gets to run the department or,
0: what? Who should we the make, or should, do government. we make a new
1: department or, or, or a new center? You know, like how do you justify Making a center for, you know, genome studies or something. Well, because genomes are important. Hmm. And then other people say, well, you're just doing stamp collecting. Yeah, yeah exactly. I know. I, I think that's a that that is a very important thing. And and I, I recently I've been interested in going back and looking in the 1970s as the sociobiology wars, where, um, hmm. for example, E.O. Wilson published this book, Sociobiology, in, in 1975, and uh, people like right down his hall at Harvard, like Richard Lewontin and Stephen Jay Gould, uh, just waged a fierce war against him. And basically they were using this opportunity to, um, to make a play for the direction that biology should go. So that E.O. Wilson is saying— We should look at animals and people as basically these these sort of sets of genes that have been tuned by natural selection. And so everything about their behavior, um, we should think about them um, in large part as being, you know, uh, adaptations for reproductive success, Um, whereas... Wanton and Gould were saying, well, behavior is so incredibly complicated and humans are so different that you couldn't possibly ever do that. So mm-hmm. we should not do that. Um, and, and anyone who does make those claims is just a, 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 inde- a reductionist, <laughs> a, a reductionist, or like literally they they would link Wilson with Nazis. Oh, I mean, wow. They just did. They just said, though, this is part of this tradition that, you know, you can you can run run straight to Nazis. So they, they went there. Right. Um, what they wanted to do was to get people to think about, uh, to do research that was, um, that addressed the questions in biology that they found more interesting. So, you know, Stephen Jay Gould was very interested in, well, how do embryos develop and how, and what, you know, what is the course of development and, and how does the evolution of, of development lead to different forms, you know, so that if you look at, just to give one example he loved to use, if you looked at an animal with gigantic horns, you could you might say like, oh, those horns are gigantic for a very clear-cut adaptive reason. And he might say like, no, well, actually, as animals get bigger, their horns get much, much bigger. So it's just a side effect of hmm. this other process. You know, if you're so fixated on looking at every little thing as being this, you know, adaptive thing. Tool. Right. Huh. So, you know, it's—so we have the sort of the luxury of time that it's, you know, over 40 years since all that happened. Um, and people were just like—just the battles were so pitched. But I don't know. Now you kind of look at it and be like, yeah, yeah, okay, like, sure. Like, you know, you don't want to—you don't want to be too simplistic about how genes work. But, you know, like we know that genes are very important for behavior. And on the other hand, we also know that you can't reduce— behavior just to genes like, Hmm. and so you, you know, in hindsight, you sort of wonder what were they fighting about? And I do think they were fighting
0: about turf turf. Well, how do you remain sensitive to that? Well, you're reporting on the present day. I mean, how do you, (laughs) so I, I'm a, I'm a trainee, I'm a resident, right? So that's like not quite yet a doctor, but still a doctor. And um, I do a little research and, I think it's been very complex for me to come into a field and try to understand both the intellectual history and the social history that has produced what is going on in the field right now and how some of those cogs that are turning have been set in motion decades ago. (laughs) So how do you, I mean, and you have science as your topic, you know, not just one particular niche like what I'm working in. So that seems like a very, uh, learned skill. I'm curious how you can parse that out. Um, well, I,
1: I, I think that I, uh, you know, I approach writing about science, uh, through telling stories and I also approach it in part to learn about science by reading the stories, um, and, you know, that, that can be really incredibly helpful. So, um, I when recently say, read, I recently sorry, read this
0: stories. But, hmm? When you say stories, you mean like the journal articles or other science writing?
1: No, I mean, um, history of science, history of science. um, okay. you know, and there are, you know, there are, are scholars who, who specialize uh, on this and, and, yeah, I think journalists and scientists need to really learn from them. Um, and then there are journalists who have, in effect, become historians. I think of, like, James Gleick, for example. I, I read not too long ago his biography of Richard Feynman, which mm. is just fantastic. And, um, you know, obviously Richard Feynman, on his own, did not invent modern physics. But he had this amazing uh, life where he—, he was central to that drama from the 1930s onward. And so in, you know, following his life and the story of his life, you get this story of these alliances and friendships and conflicts and all the rest and and, and, and that, you know, produced sort of the first version of modern physics and then a new version on top of that and then a newer version on top of that. And, Hmm. um, yeah, so if you want to understand – uh, the field you're getting into i mean you really have to learn the history of the field. and i don't think scientists get that or they don't have that exp- they don't. there's there's not that expectation in terms of how you train a scientist so mm-hmm. you know i i had you know people who um were you know i went to scientists i went to to um edit my um uh, my um book i should say uh, let me back up. I had scientists who um, I went to to fact check my book. So I would show them chapters or like the whole manuscript and just say, like, have I made mistakes? And, um, you know, they would help me with that. But then for them, the history was often quite new to them. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I I just I don't see how you can um, become a card carrying geneticist without understanding um, the very complicated, messy, and sometimes disturbing history of your field. um sure. You know, I mean— Well, they need to read your book. Well, like. <laughs> that's a great place to start. <laughs> I mean, the thing is that the problem is, you know, just to give this example with genetics, is that people just have a very simplistic history. So if you say eugenics, they think, oh, you mean the Nazis, Nazis bad, we're not eugenicists. And the fact is that— um eugenics, the phrase eugenics was coined, uh, the word was coined by Francis Galton, who um, is one of the founders of genetics in the sense that like the methods people use to, to understand the inheritance of complex traits, they're all just using Galton's methods. And um, American uh, genesis. the very first ones, um, you know, right when the, the name genetics was coined in 1900, were generally themselves eugenicists who really very passionately believed that, for example, if you're deaf, you shouldn't be able to have children. Hmm. That's what we're talking about, and and they, you know, and and politicians, you know, in the United States, uh, many of whom we we look up to, like Teddy Roosevelt, they listened to those scientists and said, "Aha, okay, well let's let's do good science, let's have science guide our policy." Right. And let's let's do eugenics. Let's sterilize people. We did that, and and so um, I think geneticists today have to know about that.
0: Well, I think even more widely than that, a lot of the statistical measures we still use have their origin in eugenics. Like yes, and the correlation coefficient was At Galton.
1: Yep, right. Galton and, and and his followers, uh, absolutely, they 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 were the ones who set these things up that we still use. They were right. Um, in that respect, they were right. But they also were, uh, in, you know, had these uh, very dangerous, toxic ideas um,
0: on, you know, issues of class and poverty and race. Well, so here then is maybe another facet of science that we don't often think of, at least, scientists don't often think of is how it's the scientific process and what constitutes the science of the day isn't really separated or can't be separated from the political climate of the day. And that's something that I feel you've written about also recently on how science is sometimes or evidence or data sometimes weaponized towards political ends. Um, one example that just comes to mind now. Uh, you wrote a piece in uh, in your matter column about Elizabeth Warren's DNA results, and it was very. You were clarifying exactly what that meant, and you were clarifying because there are uh, a lot of polit- politically uh, active people saying incorrect things about it. Right? And so, I'm curious how you view the scientific climate um, from a political perspective? Well,
1: I think that there are a lot of people out there who get paid to um, advance some uh, political agenda, you know, uh, trying to gather power to a certain group of people, and they'll just use whatever they can and mislead people if necessary, um, and they'll use science to get the job done. The, this is what they get paid for. And, um, uh, it, uh, everybody needs to find a job, but, <laughs> but sure. I find this like uh. an incredibly toxic thing. I mean, it's, it's like they're, they are spreading misinformation about science, um, for a living. Uh, and, um, so, yeah. So, you know, I was writing, I was explaining how Elizabeth Warren, you know, went to a geneticist, um, and said, can you can you learn things about my ancestry by looking at my DNA? And this is Carlos Bustamante uh, at Stanford. And he's like, sure, this is what I do every day. So <laughs> I got they, stuff to do that. <laughs> and so he got hold of Warren's uh, blood and, uh, you know, they, they sequenced the DNA out of it. And, um, and then you're able to see pieces of DNA and say, oh, well, the— I could recognize this piece as having having an ancestry in this population and so on and so forth. So lo and behold, it turns out that Warren does have a Native American ancestor several generations back. Okay. You know, I will—I'm a science writer. I mean, if people want to argue about whether she should have done that test or not, that aware, gonna, yeah, that's, that, a, that's a different question, thing. That, yeah. That's a totally legitimate debate. I'm not going to get involved with that. Um, I, I, I think, you know, I'm, I'm here to like, sort of be in that sort of fact-based world. And so one fact is that, you know, just because you can point to some piece of DNA does not automatically enroll you in a tribe. That's sure. not how it works. Yeah. And it's frankly disrespectful to the tribes, you know, like they, they have their, they, it, 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 it totally, you know, tries to run over their autonomy. So leave that out of it. The, the the basic biological fact is that Elizabeth Warren has this certain amount of DNA. So what was bizarre was that there the, there were these Republican operatives who looked at that thing that I had written, and then they looked back at another article i had written, right? <laughs> where uh, I was writing about a study by scientists at Twenty Three and Me uh, who had looked at their customers' DNA. It's sort of a very broad way and was trying to roughly estimate, like, you know, how much Native American ancestry is there that they can identify in people who self-identify as being of European descent. It's a totally legitimate scientific question. You know, they may not be able to get a precise answer, but they they, they put this forward in a, in a journal article. Um. So these political operatives basically mangled what I was saying, uh, and I think willfully misunderstood it, and to, to basically come out and say, like, "Elizabeth Warren has less DNA uh, let me put it this way.: Elizabeth less Warren, than anyone else? Yeah. Elizabeth Warren has less Native American ancestry than the average white person,
0: yeah.
1: which is uh, such a s- frankly, stupid misunderstanding of, a, of the basic arithmetic of the results. And so I had to go write another piece of the time saying stop it stop <laughs> please stop which was effect- I thought it was effective but it was interesting so and it really th- annoyed them I well, have to say they 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 re- I mean yeah, I was looking on Twitter and I could see that I had I had really ticked them off because I had called them on it what what they were doing right. but that's just one little example unfortunately there are lots of examples I mean we have the people now in the EPA who are are trying to promote the idea of basically one scientist who claims that, well, a little bit of radiation or a little bit of some toxic chemical might actually be good for you. I mean, nobody else in the field is, is going with this, but because this will um, be easier on industries in terms of regulation, they're promoting that. And you know, again, that this, is, this is another example of you know, spreading uh, misleading information um, I mean, here is a case where, you know, y- you could potentially be really harming people's lives.
0: The radiation and the chemicals.
1: Right. Yeah. Right. I mean, if we say like, oh, well, what's a little mercury between friends? You know, someone's going to get hurt. Well, so the question
0: for me then, something that I've wondered in, you know, reading your pieces or just following the dialogue more generally is— is um, the phrase that comes to mind is like, what gives? Like, how, how can you make a scientific claim? Like, if the whole idea of science is that through objective or uh, empirical inquiry, we can reveal something or learn something about our environment. And if even though that tool set remains in place, those answers are still politicized and misconstrued, then, not only does that make your job extremely complex because you're the one who brings us, you know, to the to the public where the politics are just going going crazy, but um, even the scientific process itself is damaged. I feel, and so what do you do? <laughs> I mean, that's a. So you had a you had a, a debate over you know just to use this example again the Elizabeth Warren uh, genome, um. And I also posted your response on my Facebook page, and I was surprised that I think it had the opposite effect of what I was hoping. And I think it, in fact, divided more than it brought back together, and that just totally boggled my mind.
1: <laughs> um, I, it, it it is a fact that um, if a lot of times when we think, ah, well, I'm I'm settling this. Problem once and for all that we discover, like no, actually, like people um, are not coming away the way we expected them to, mm. um, and they're actually like that's an that's actually kind of an interesting phenomenon in and of itself. I mean, and that has to do with the psychology of science communication. Mm. And here, Yale, Dan Kahan has been doing just experiments on that and other people have as well. And, um, you know, you look at, at what happens in terms of, uh, you know, how people get information in different contexts and so on and their different, you know, cultural self-identifications. And, um, you know, the data is pretty compelling when you're looking at thousands and thousands of people and you get these these big effects, you know, that stand up to the statistics. So, you know, you cannot, uh, to begin with, you cannot just assume that data speaks for itself. Um, uh, You cannot, and you you should not assume that, well, if if a lot of data isn't solving the problem, then a huge amount of data will, Um, that you have to understand, well, you know, what is the nature of how people respond to Information, whether it's climate change, whether it's issues of of identity and ancestry, um, whether it's about you know when life begins. I mean, uh, so so to take this sort of sort of uh, to say like, well, I'm a scientist and I and I and I purely only think about you know quote unquote the science um, is not going to get you very far.
0: It's more than figures and papers, I guess.
1: Yeah. I mean, that's not to deny the importance of the science, but to say, you know, science is sort of plugged into this um, bigger cultural and social
0: world. Hmm. Well, I look forward to reading more of your pieces and how you can explain the science in a very compelling way that hopefully uh, hooks people in, helps them with evidence. Thank you very much. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. you enjoyed that episode thanks again to carl for being on the podcast and for the many conversations we've had off the record he's been a very helpful mentor in terms of writing and understanding how everything works Um, you can also find carl on twitter at carl zimmer again that's at carl zimmer you can obviously find his work on the new york times webpage or on his really awesome website carlzimmer.com You could pre-order his next book, Life's Edge, The Search for What It Means to Be Alive, at your favorite bookseller. Or you can purchase his previous book, She Has Her Mother's Eyes, also wherever books are sold. And so I'd just like to offer a special thanks to the Yale School of Medicine for sponsoring the podcast, to Adrian Bonnenberger for producing the podcast, and to Ryan McAvoy for his help sound editing. A special thanks to you for listening. And again, my name is Daniel Barron, and I've been your host. And I'll see you next time here on Science at All.